Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I get to open up this passage uh, with us, and uh, it should be fun. Before I do, I just wanted to make sure that I point out one thing in your program. I realize this affects only a small group of people, but um, is the parent dessert that's coming up. If you've got a fifth grader, uh, we would love to have you come to that parent dessert. It's an opportunity for you to learn about how we do student ministries. Uh, I read a book called Sticky Faith, and in Sticky Faith, they, they look at what are the factors that make it where kids who graduate high school stay in church and stay connected to Christ versus those who walk away from the faith. And one of the things that they point out is that a significant influence is uh, kids who keep their faith is when they've got uh, at least five adults that aren't in their family who are a significant, meaningful relationship in their life. And that's why we do student ministries. And so if you're a, a parent of an incoming sixth grader, make sure you check that out. I uh, would love to have you get to know Josh and their team. I, you know, in a few years, I'll have a sixth grader and I can't wait to have a sixth grader in that ministry. It's, it's a great thing. All right, well, today we are uh, gonna continue our study of the book of Titus. And I'm curious, if you're, if you're willing to kind of raise your hand, you can. Uh, if you don't want to, that's, that's all right. Some of you just will never raise it, no matter if I say, are you here today? You won't, you won't raise it. But, but um, raise your hand if you've ever had a really bad church experience. Okay? That's a lot of hands. Uh, you can put them down. And uh, good for you, that those of you who didn't raise your hand. That's wonderful. Uh, my guess is, for those of you that have had a bad experience, there were a lot of different things at play, a lot of different stuff, but my guess is that one of the things that made it a bad church experience were issues that stemmed from the leadership in those churches. My guess is that those of you who maybe haven't had a bad experience because maybe you've had no church experience, one of the things that has made you feel like, I don't even know if I want to try a church or go to a church, is just the things you've heard about churches, particularly related to leadership. You've heard of financial uh, embezzlement problems, and you've heard of affairs, and you've heard of all sorts of improprieties, and it makes you go, I just don't know if I even want to be in an environment like that. Well, if, if, if you're in any of those situations where you go, man, I have had just really bad church experiences, um, you're in a good place, I hope, today, because we're going to be looking at what God would say is a good leadership experience? What is it that church leaders uh, should have be part of their lives? What should really form and shape the leadership of a church? Now, this is all coming out of this book of Titus that we've been looking at. Again, this is our second week. And uh, last week, we told you that the theme of the book really is about how to live a healthy Christian life, how to be a healthy church. Uh, the Apostle Paul has uh, traveled all throughout the Mediterranean Rim. Actually, here's a, a map of uh, all the places Paul has been. You see all these different lines on his all different missionary journeys and all these places. This is where he's been. And uh, he has established a church in Crete. That's the area there that's highlighted in yellow in the middle, uh, just below Greece. Uh, here's, here's Crete, Crete kind of blown up. Um, Paul has established a church there, and we don't know in what city, right? You see actually one of the cities is Phoenix, isn't that kind of interesting? There's actually a place in the end of the book of Acts uh, where it says that uh, Paul and a number of people intended to winter in Phoenix. It's like a life verse for every snowbird. So... So we don't know where exactly Paul has planted this church, but a church has gotten established on Crete, and he sent Titus there uh, because Paul can't continue on there. Paul's going to keep traveling and doing other things. He sent Titus to try to help establish it as a healthy church. In fact, look at verse 5. Uh, Paul writes this to Titus. Titus is just the guy he'd been mentoring and pouring into. 
He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he says, Titus, hey, there's Christians here. There are people that have responded to the good news about Jesus Christ. They've believed in him. They uh, now have relationship with God and eternal life, but they need to be organized into a church community that's going to nourish and strengthen and encourage uh, their growth in the faith, and that's going to continue to have a, a faithful impact and witness in the rest of this place. So, so set it up, put it in order. Um, we saw really what would it look like for it to be healthy? What would it look like for it to be in order? Paul described that actually in verse one. He said, here's the reason I'm writing. He said, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, here's where I'm writing, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Here's why I'm writing, Paul says, I want you to be healthy. And healthy looks like faith plus knowledge of the truth plus godliness. That's what it is. Faith, it's confidence, it's trust in God. Specifically trust in God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Living a blameless, perfect, holy life. Dying as a sacrifice in our place. Rising over uh, and, and conquering Satan's sin and death in his resurrection. Faith in that, trust in that. He says, when you put that with knowledge of the truth, that's knowing the scriptures, knowing who God is, knowing what the true story of the world is, being able to recognize truth from error. When you put trust plus knowledge of the truth plus godliness, godliness is obeying the Lord. It's growing in your love and in your holiness and in your uh, purity and in just your ability to kind of understand yourself and be under control. Faith plus knowledge of the truth plus godliness equals health. That's why Paul's writing this letter. And it's interesting that when he tells Titus, hey, I want you to put things into order, the first thing he tells him to do is to establish leadership. Isn't that interesting? I think it shows us that leadership is always connected to every part of our lives. Leadership is connected uh, to our family life. Leadership is connected wherever your kids go to school. There's a certain culture that's there and there are certain uh, dynamics that are there because of the leadership of that school. Uh, there are certain leadership dynamics that impact all sorts of things and where you work. Uh, there are leadership components that play in church, on the teams your kids play for. Everywhere you go, it's impacted by leadership. Same in the church. So Paul says, hey, if we're gonna have a healthy church, you gotta establish some healthy leadership first. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at uh, what this text says and what it doesn't say about church leadership. And then we're going to focus on some kind of practical dangers uh, for the leadership and for the members. Uh, so we're going to talk really about that. So first, what does this passage say and not say about church leadership uh, in these three areas? Structure, qualifications, and responsibilities. What does this passage say, and what doesn't it say? What does it maybe leave open uh, in these three areas? That's what we're going to focus on as we dig into this passage. So before we do, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you that you speak to us through it, and we invite you now to speak. We invite you now to teach. We invite you now to lead us. Would you shape us into a healthy church? one that's growing in faith, that's growing in knowledge of the truth, that's growing in godliness. Uh, would you help us to do that as we look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, all right. So first, what does this text say and not say related to church leadership structure? 
to structure. Well, well, the first thing it says is that we need to have elders. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders was a word that uh, the people would have been very familiar with. Every culture, every area had elders. A lot of times they were literally the oldest people in the town. Uh, other times they were, uh, like particularly when, when Paul would go to synagogues, the, the Jews had been spread all over the place and the temple had been destroyed. And so uh, the Jews couldn't go to it all the time. And so they formed local leadership in all these synagogues. Those were called elders. Uh, Paul says, you need leadership. You need elders. Uh, he also uses in verse 7 the word overseer. You need elders, so, so this is something you need. You need leadership. And he first notice says that the structure of this, it needs to be plural. It needs to be plural, not just singular, right? It says, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It doesn't say, hey, Titus, why don't you just lead the whole church of Crete from your ivory tower? Hey, uh, Titus, why don't you appoint one senior leader in every town. It doesn't say that. Nor does it say, hey, uh, you don't really need leadership. You know, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You just get together and you don't need any leadership at all. He doesn't say that. He says, no, we need leaders and we need a multiplicity of leaders. Um, I just think that that makes so much sense when you think about uh, both who God is as well as just practically how things work, right? So in terms of who God is, God is eternally existing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has existed forever in relationship, in community, Right? And then when Jesus comes and Jesus deploys his people to go do incredible ministry, how does he deploy them? In teams of two. When Paul travels all throughout that map that we saw, he's always traveling with people. He's traveling with Barnabas. He's traveling with Luke. He's traveling with Timothy and others. Right? Team ministry is always how God does it. And then if you just think practically, it makes a lot of sense. Because the, 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 the culture of any uh, organization or team or family, it, it takes on the, the, the personality of its leadership. And so you don't want just one leader shaping everything. You need a plurality because no one person is healthy enough or strong enough or gifted enough or smart enough or has enough strengths to be able to do it. You need a plurality in the mix, right? This is why if you're married... Uh, you tend to, I mean, typically you married someone very different from you, didn't you? Why? You go, I don't know. I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> but you married someone very different from you, and that person has different strengths and different gifts. And uh, particularly if you end up having children, uh, those strengths are remarkable because there are certain ways that, that your spouse will be able to connect and relate with a kid that you can't, right? And if it was just you, and some of you are single parents, you know the, the difficulty, the frustration of that. Um, so we need a plurality of leadership. That's the first thing about structure. Second thing to notice is that these elders are to be appointed by existing leaders, right? He says, Titus, go ahead, you appoint elders in every town. So these are to be uh, elders appointed by Titus. Well, Titus, who was he appointed by? He was appointed by Paul. Who was Paul appointed by? Jesus. So the idea here is that local church leadership is to be established and appointed by other existing recognized leaders. This means church leadership is not to be self-appointed. 
All right, I rejoice that we live in a city uh, where so many people see this is a place we need to start churches and preach the gospel and plant new things and start new works. Um, anytime you look at a, at, a, at a study of some of the uh, biggest cities with the most number of people who aren't Christians, Phoenix is always in the top 10. And so I'm so thankful that God keeps sending uh, pastors and church planters and all those things. But I get concerned, honestly, uh, sometimes when people come here and they're just self-appointed. They're not part of a denomination. They're not part of a network. They haven't been formally sent by anybody. They just sort of hang out their shingle and set up a website and off we go. That's not the biblical pattern. So it's not self-appointed. Notice it's also not, hey, Titus, why don't you just go around and take a survey from all the people of who they would like to be the leaders and why don't you let them pick it? He says, no, Titus, you're a leader. You've been established by me. You go appoint it. So, Church leadership is uh, plural. It's appointed by existing leadership. And the next thing to notice, this may just seem obvious, but it's worth pointing out, is that church leadership is local. See that? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He doesn't say, hey, lead it from a distance or just appoint elders over the whole island of Crete. No, appoint leadership in every town. This is why, like for us, with Redemption, we are one church, 10 congregations spread out all over Arizona, most of us in the valley, but there's a congregation in Flagstaff, there's a congregation in Tucson, and I'm part of a leadership team, a plural group that helps oversee that entire, uh, that entire thing. But we feel like that's not good to just have leaders that oversee the big thing. Each of these congregations need local elders, because one of the roles of elders is to be shepherds. That's a word that's used in 1 Peter 5, that elders are to shepherd. Well, think just for a moment about a shepherd. What does a, if, I don't know, maybe some of you have been shepherds or known shepherds. I've never known a shepherd. I don't know. But imagine you knew a shepherd and you showed up while they were shepherding. What do you think they'd smell like? Sheep, right? A shepherd should smell like sheep, which is why he says, hey, you need leadership in every town, in every place. You need local elders. That's why we've done that. So we have a, a leadership team that helps provide some big picture vision, but we have local elders that know our people and set our budget and make important decisions that affect our congregation because we don't think that the people in Flagstaff are best led by the people at Gateway and vice versa. So we need local leaders. So that's what it says as it relates to structure. Got to be plural, got to be appointed by existing leaders, got to be local. But think about it. That's all it says. So what doesn't it say about church leadership structure? Tons, right? And this is what's so fascinating. I mean, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 Peter 5, uh, Acts 20 are really the passages that talk about church leadership and talk about elders. And they're very not specific, Right, so especially as it relates to structure, it says it's plural, but it doesn't say how many. Right, you gotta have at least two, that's plural. Uh, but do you have 20, do you have 200, do you have 2,000? I mean, how many else, it doesn't say. It doesn't say, uh, should it be more like a board or more like a team or more like a family? It doesn't say how often should they meet? How should they work? How should they make decisions? Should they just sort of look around and grunt and go, yeah, I agree. Or should it be like Robert's rules of order? I first, I second, I, you know, do we have any, right? I mean, it doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say, should some of these elders be paid by the church? Should some of them not be? If some of them are, how many should be elders? How many shouldn't? What should be the ratios? What should be the terms? It just doesn't say any of that. 
Uh, and sometimes I wish it would because that's where a lot of the confusion and a lot of the frustrations in churches and church leadership and church splits, that's where that stuff happens. But Paul says, I'm not going to address that. I'm not going to get into that. And here's why. Because for Paul, what he's concerned about is the mission. He's concerned about the gospel flourishing in Crete, the gospel spreading in Crete, the gospel spreading all over the world. And so he says, here's what, you, you need this basic structure and after that, structure it in whatever way will further the mission. Structure it in whatever way will help that particular church in that particular city with those kind of cultures and that big of size, you figure it out. So it doesn't say much about structure, but that's what it does say. All right, the next area that Paul addresses here is qualifications. What kind of leaders should be chosen? What criteria should we use? And it's fascinating because almost all of Paul's criteria has to do with character. Not skills, not personality, character. Now that just is fascinating to me because as I sort of watch our culture, which is on one hand obsessed with leadership, and yet on the other hand a bit confused about whether character should matter in leadership. It's very interesting, right? Like you have college basketball coaches whose character is absolutely troubling, and yet people go, well, they win. So does character even matter? Should it even count for that? Right, or if you uh, look at a school, right? I was just listening to this interview with a professor who was saying, you know what, honestly, I don't think character is part of our job. I think we, our, our job as, as, uh, as a college, university, isn't to shape character. That's for parents to do. That's for churches and synagogues to do. That's not our job. Our job is to give instruction, to give information. Think about your NFL quarterback. How much character should he have? to be the face of the franchise and of the city. Think about politics. How much, how much does character matter? Does character matter as we elect our leaders or does just, they, can they get it done? Does that matter? Right, there's all of this sort of confusion. How much does character matter? And yet here, what else is interesting about that? We live in this culture that doesn't like defining what character is, right? Because if you have to define character, you're saying this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. This is godly. This is ungodly, right? So here's what's interesting. On one hand, we can't decide if we want to even use character as a criteria for leadership. But even if we say, yes, we do want to do that, now we're confused. Well, what's the criteria? And, and so all of that confusion that exists in the culture, and then I just hold that up against this, and I go, okay, there is no confusion for God. Character matters absolutely and what's the basis? Here it is. God just spells it out. Here's what this should be. So character absolutely matters. And in verse 6, uh, Paul lays out sort of this, this sort of banner, this overall description of the kind of person uh, that should be considered for leadership. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So if we're evaluating leadership, uh, Paul says, hey, Titus, here's the kind of guys to look for. First, above reproach. He actually uses that phrase again in verse 7. Above reproach means there is an overall quality of their life that is impressive. Their character, you just look at them and go, man, I, I would like to be like that man. I would like my daughter to marry a man like that. 
They're, they're an impressive person from a character perspective because they are, they're above reproach. They're in a sense, a word you could use would be blameless. Not sinless, not faultless, but blameless. Like there's no charge of here's this thing that we can stick against them because this is this repeatable pattern of sin and, and problem in their life. Like just those things just don't seem to stick because their character's above reproach. So look for a guy like that, Paul says. He says, look for someone who is a husband of one wife. I don't have time to get into all of this and all the different scriptures about this, but this is one of the reasons why we believe here in male eldership. All of our elders and pastors are, are men. And he says they should be husband of one wife. What does that mean? Well, specifically, the, the literal wording there means a one-woman man. So, of course, polygamy, that's out. <laughs> but that's not even Paul's main point. Paul's saying, this guy's got to be a one-woman man. He's got to be faithful. He's got to have eyes only for his wife. He's got to be loyal. He's got to be faithful. He's got to be committed just to her. Why? Because you can teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And what kind of marriages does Paul want to have in this healthy church? He wants to have marriages where husband and wife have eyes only for each other. So he says if there's an issue of impurity, if this guy's constantly flirting with other women, if he's constantly connecting with and looking up old flings on Facebook, and if he's engaged in pornography, and if he's doing these things, and they're like habitual patterns, like this is a problem. So above reproach, husband of one wife, then this one's really interesting. This has generated a lot of discussion in commentators and theologians. He says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Part of why this has been such an interesting passage is uh, for one reason, uh, in Paul's description in 1 Timothy 3, which has a lot of these same characteristics, he doesn't say children have to be believers. He just says children have to be obedient. So this one seems, oh, is that more specific? Children have to, have, do they have to actually have faith? They have to be Christians? Or is it just enough that they're kind of under control? So that's why it's generated some question. The other reason is there's, it's not entirely sure what does he mean by believers, right? The Greek word there is the word for faithful. Well, faithful can mean filled with saving faith, or it can mean good, under control, they're, they're, faith, they're a faithful person, right? What does he mean here? Well, I think we get a little bit of a sense of it by the way he explains it. He says, uh, uh, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So from that, we conclude as a church that Paul here doesn't expect that all uh, children of elders have to be uh, dynamic, vibrant Christians themselves, but that they need to be uh, shepherded in an environment where their allegiance as a family is is to Jesus. So this is a family that's being raised as a Christian family rather than a Cretan family. They're not divided. Uh, they're not on different pages. And the children need to be under control. Why? Because, he says in the next verse, this guy's an overseer. He's God's steward. And if you're managing God's household, how are you going to manage a household of Christians if you can't manage a household of people in your own home? So those are the overriding uh, kind of banner things. He gets a little more specific then in verses uh, 7 and 8 and 9. He says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There that word is again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. 
He says, listen, this guy, he can't be pushy, can't be always trying to get his own way. He can't be, you know, short fuse. He's always blowing up at people. Uh, that greedy for gain is an important one. He's going to have a position of leadership and influence. He can't be trying to do that so that he elevates his own business or elevates his own career or elevates himself. That's not what this is about, Paul says. He says, rather, verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Hospitable is an interesting word here. Uh, it doesn't mean when you go to this guy's house, it needs to look like Pinterest blew up. Right? That's not what it's saying. Hospitable means a love for outsiders, a welcoming in of people that are different, people that are on the fringes. Why does that matter to Paul? Again, he's concerned about the mission. The mission's gonna move forward if the church is welcoming in people who are far from God. Well, how's the church gonna do that if the leaders don't do that, right? So hospitable's important. There's just this overall desire for righteousness, right? Lover of good, upright, holy. There's gotta be a sense in which this guy uh, first, before he even leads his family, he leads himself, right? So he's self-controlled and disciplined and growing in those ways. And there's gotta be a, a, a firm grasp on the scriptures, verse nine, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. If you read the message uh, that paraphrased by Eugene Peterson, he'll actually say here that this, the way he sums it up is that this man has a firm grip on himself and a firm grip on the word. That's what he's describing. Now, when I read that, as an elder who's been evaluated by these criteria. And just in general, I, just as a person, I read that and I think, oh my gosh, who could possibly do that? Who could live up to that? Because if you knew me like I know me, you'd have lots of times where you go, I don't know, I was a little pushy there. I was kind of arrogant. I didn't ex display much discipline there. So here's the thing, these are not... Uh, to be sort of qualifications that are checked off and as soon as you mess up in one of these, eh, you're gone. This is to say, Paul's saying, hey, Titus, look for people who possess this as their general, like if you were to describe them, this is the ways you describe them. These are their general characteristics. We do a thing actually whenever uh, we interview a prospective elder, we, we have an interview with he and his wife. And one of the things we do is we hand her the Bible uh, opened up to this passage and we say, okay, read this passage and uh, pick out the three uh, qualities that, that your husband most clearly possesses. Like he is most like this. And then we uh, say, okay, now pick out the three biggest weaknesses that he has. And you know what? We've never had a wife go, I don't see any weaknesses. <laughs> because if you are a wife, you know there are weaknesses, right? So it's not, a, it's not an issue of perfection. It's an issue of progress. It's an issue of just overall the thrust of their life is they're a godly, I want to be like that man. I want my kids to be like that man. I want my daughters to marry a man like that. That's what he's going for. And honestly, really, if you think about it, this is what all of us should be striving toward, right? Don't we all want to be hospitable and lovers of good and upright and holy? Don't we, don't we want to get rid of the, the lack of self-control and the violence and the arrogance? We all want to get rid of that stuff. This is what we're aiming for. So Paul says, listen, character matters. It absolutely matters. And notice what isn't part of this. 
He doesn't say, hey, find the most charismatic person. Find the person with the biggest personality. Find the person that can really rally a room. Find a person with lots of wealth. Find a person with lots of business success. Find a person with lots of popularity. Right? That's how the world selects leaders, right? God says, I would rather have a guy that is not very good at rallying a room, but he's godly. I'd rather have a guy that's poor and nothing of a career, but, but he's filled with character. Right? Do you see how countercultural this is? Paul's saying that's what matters. That's what's important. All right, so structure, qualifications. Uh, finally, what responsibilities? Paul touches on this just a little bit. Uh, there's a few things he says. The first one is that the elders are to be, in verse 7, God's steward. This means they're to manage. They're to realize God's the one that owns this church. I'm just here to help steward it. I'm here to help manage it. I'm here to help it go along, but this is God's church. I'm going to give an answer to him. And in fact, it says in James 3, not many of you should want a position of leadership because you'll face a stricter judgment. You'll give an account of your life for your leadership. You're God's steward. Right, you have a financial advisor maybe in your life, someone that you uh, entrust some of your money to and they are supposed to steward it. It's not their money, it's your money. This is not our church, my church, the elders' church. This is God's church. We steward it. So that's the one responsibility. And then the, the next uh, couple come out of verse nine where it says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So responsibilities, be God's steward. Next responsibility, instruct in sound doctrine. Sound is that word healthy, that word we get hygiene from. Instruct in healthy doctrine. Know the scriptures, teach people. Here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's what you need to do, here's who you need to trust, here's how that happens. Give instruction in those things, that's a role of elders. And then the third one, this is, this is especially important, and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. The next passage, Paul is actually going to spend, well, you can just look, verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. He's going to go after all these people who need to be rebuked because they're leading people astray. That's one of the roles of the elders. That's the role of a shepherd, right? Not only does a shepherd smell like sheep, but an effort, a shepherd fights off wolves, right? So after that, again, there's not much discussion. Make sure they're plural. Appoint them. Local, character's really important. They gotta see themselves as stewards. They gotta be able to instruct people. They gotta be able to watch out for wolves. After that, there's not a lot of details. So that's what this says and doesn't say about church leadership. Before we talk about the dangers, I just would invite you to, to pray uh, for the leaders in our church, to pray for our, our elders uh, and our pastors. Um, here's our elder team right now as it stands. is Matthew Brazelton, John Cronwald, myself, uh, Dale Thakra, and Jeffrey Wilcoxon. So these are our, the, the elders that govern our church. We also have other guys who are pastors, Josh Wad and Mark Andrus. We have other uh, people that are paid staff, uh, but this is our, our elder team. Not all of these guys are part of our staff, though many of them are. And uh, we would ask you to be praying for us as a team. In particular, uh, we're looking over the next year to add a number of elders who are not staff people. We wanna add some volunteer uh, non-staff elders, and we're looking to do that. We're praying and working pretty aggressively on that, actually, and so would love for your prayers that we could be able to find the kind of guys described 
um, in this passage. And uh, we think there are a lot of people like that in our church, but we also know not all of them are necessarily called to be elders. You couldn't have an elder team of 50 people, so we're looking for the, you know, the, the kind of size and the other dynamics that make it really fit. So if you want more information about that, about our process, about uh, other things that we kind of expect related to elders, here's a website you can go to. Just go to our website at the end, add uh, elders, so gateway.redemptionaz.com slash elders, and you can read, uh, read all about it, all right? Okay, I want to close this by, um, by just talking about some dangers. Dangers first for the leaders. And there's a lot. I mean, I, there is so much that I had to leave on the cutting room floor of this message. Um, but as I kind of boiled it down to some key things that, that flow out of this, here's the first practical danger for leaders. It relates to over-shepherding or under-shepherding. Right? This passage says, give instruction in sound doctrine, which means there's shepherding, there's teaching, there's feeding that has to happen. But one of the dangers for leaders is that they can over-shepherd, that rather than just instructing in sound doctrine, rather than just caring for people, they begin to feel like they've got a junior Holy Spirit badge. And they over-shepherd. And, and some of you have been in environments like this where you can't really make, the culture is such, you can't make a big decision without running it by the elders. So before you can move, before you can take a job, before you can pick a spouse, you better run it through the elders. And it's very clear that that's how it needs to work. That is over-shepherding. Now li- listen, if you're thinking about moving to another city or taking a job or getting married, would it be wise to go to wise people trusted people and get advice? Sure. But do you have to? No. Right? That's, that's, that's called a cult. <laughs> right? And, and over-shepherding is this real danger where leaders go, you know what? I, I've got authority and I, and I see people going astray and I need to speak into it. And, and all of a sudden that good thing becomes kind of a bad thing. So that's one danger. Another danger, and I think we're maybe a bit, just based on our culture, we're maybe more prone to this one, is under-shepherding. So under-shepherding, this is where Paul says, hey, you need to rebuke those who contradict. You need to step in and protect when people are going astray. This is a danger, that we wouldn't do that, that we would abdicate that leadership, that we'd be a hired hand, right? Jesus said, he said, I'm the true shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm not like the hired hand who runs away when it gets tough. And there's a danger that church leadership can be more like a hired hand. More like, well, that's not my problem. Well, I don't need to speak into that. Well, if, if I do, that, that, that's not going to be very popular. It's interesting. The over-shepherding is driven by an idolatry of control. I need to be in charge. I need to have a say. I need to make sure that I can shape everything. I don't really trust that God's leading his church. On the other hand, under-shepherding is really an idolatry of, of comfort and an idolatry of human approval. So I'm not going to have the hard conversation because it might make people not like me. I don't trust that that's actually the role God's put me in and he wants me to do it. So over-shepherding, under-shepherding. Pray for us as leaders that we would not uh, fall into either of those errors, okay? But then next, here's the, here's the two things that I would have as a concern for you, for members. On one hand, defying church leadership. And on the other hand, deifying church leadership, right? So there are some of you who your temptation is to defy church leadership. You are a natural contrarian, right? Someone says, the sky looks blue. You go, I see more purple. 
right? Just everything, you've, you've just, you disagree with it, right? That, maybe that's how you were raised. Maybe the love language of your home is argument, right? Like that's how you, maybe your parent was a lawyer, right? And so that's just how you do everything. You're just, you know, everything's a little bit of an argument, a little bit of a battle. You're a little bit contrarian. Maybe you've even had bad experiences that have made it that much harder, right? So you've got a don't tread on me flag somewhere in your house and like you are whatever, like I don't like authority, I don't like HOAs, I don't like anything that, ha- you know, I'll put my garbage out when I want, and, right? Like some of you have that kind of, that thing in you, all right? And that thing in you, when it comes to the church, you're gonna be vulnerable, you're gonna be tempted to go, well, they can't tell me what to do, they can't challenge me, they can't tell me that I ought to, you know, believe this or trust that or oh, that decision. I don't like that decision. I don't want to do that. I wouldn't build that. I don't like that. I don't like the way they, right? That whole thing. Instead of, of humbly submitting that these are the people God has leading. They're not perfect, but they're doing their best and you're going to follow them. You're going to trust them. So we got to watch out for that. But honestly, in our dynamic, in our culture, our, our church leadership, I think, is so loved and so supported and so cared for and so followed that my concern, honestly, would be more the second thing of deifying leadership. No one would, do, no one would really go, I think they're divine. But there's this sort of putting on a pedestal, this exalting, like they're kind of beyond us. And that's dangerous. That's really, really dangerous. My bigger concern is that we would put leaders on a pedestal, and I'm concerned about that for, for you, your sake and for our sake. So I'll just speak for me right now. I think the elders would echo everything I'm going to say, but just as I've reflected this as an elder, as a pastor, I, I want to just, can, I, I want to share four things, four requests that I have of you. And again, I think our elders would agree with this. I think our pastors would agree with this, but this is just for me, okay? Four things to avoid this kind of putting on a pedestal, deifying thing, okay? First, please just call me Luke, okay? I realize that some of you come from traditions where to call the pastor, anything other than Pastor Luke, would just feel disrespectful. Um, it would feel like, right, and you just, you can't help it, you can't shake it, and I just, I appreciate that, I get that. I actually lived for two summers with a, a pastor and his wife. His wife called him pastor. <laughs> the pastor's gonna be home in a few minutes, and it was nothing but a term of endearment. It was like me calling my wife honey or sweetie. It wasn't weird, right? It was just, that's, they just, that was a term of respect and endearment, and so I get that some of you are in that situation, and so here's what I just would ask. Rather than calling me pastor, Rather than calling us pastor, would you maybe just, just support us by praying for us? When you serve, when you give, when you listen, when you try to apply what we talk about, that's how you serve our church. And, and if you have kids, you go, well, what should I have, have them call me Mr. Simmons or Mr. Luke or whatever you have them call any other adult. That's the thing is I just, I don't want to be different than anybody else because I don't think I am. And there are some church environments where it's like the, the leadership become this sort of elevated, you know, there's, there's everyone else and them. I don't want that. All right, so now the, the guy's not Mark, he's Pastor Mark. Make sure you call me that. And I just, I want to run from that environment. So just call me Luke. Here's the second thing. Please help 
my family and our leadership families love the church. Don't let our families hate this church. And here's what I mean. Most of the time, I'd say 99% of the time, my family loves our church, right? And, and when we love our church is when we're just like everyone else in the church, right? So, so don't treat my kids different. Don't treat my wife different. Don't have expectations of us that you wouldn't have of everyone else. Don't, you know, if you're teaching my kids in their Sunday school class, don't think, well, you're the pastor's kid. You better have all the answers. Don't do that. You wouldn't do that to anyone else. Don't walk up to my kids and tell them some story you heard me tell you if they don't know you. Like I realize you think you know them, they don't think you know them. It feels very weird to them. You know, don't have expectations of my wife or any of other, the other pastors' wives or elders' wives that they're because of that somehow gonna be your you know, long lost friend you never had. And I'm so thankful. Our church does this really well, right? So I can say this without much fear of like, People think I'm offended because we do it really well. I just, let's keep that going. I want this to be a place where, again, it's not us and them, it's just us, all right? Here's a third thing. This is so big. Please realize that I am a work in progress. I am not sinless, but I am trying to repent. I am not perfect, but I am trying to make progress. And if you're here long enough, I will let you down. And I will sin against you. I will forget something that I should have remembered. I will, you know, either sins of commission or sins of omission. I'll just, it'll happen. And so remember, please, realize I'm a work in progress. And this is something, this is so important to realize. Because here's the thing. The way we become Christians is through repentance and faith. Right? Repentance is saying, I was wrong. I'm a sinner. I need help and turning from sin and turning toward Christ, right? That's what repentance and faith is. That's how you become a Christian. Well, do you know how you grow as a Christian? Well, by reading a lot of books. No! <laughs> by repentance and faith. Because you keep having these things happen in your life where you go, oh my gosh, I blew it again. Oh my gosh, there's a blind spot I had never seen before. Oh my goodness, this dishonors the Lord and that attitude and that thought. And the way you grow is by continuing to repent and believe, to admit you were wrong, to admit you blew it, and to trust in Christ. Well, here's what happens. If you start to feel like you're on a pedestal, or people put you on a pedestal, you know what becomes really hard? Repentance and faith. Because to repent means I gotta admit I was wrong. I gotta admit I blew it. I gotta admit I let someone down. And so what happens is if, if the church and the leadership begin to kind of accept this, this pedestal, the church leadership actually stops growing spiritually because they quit repenting and they quit believing and they quit acknowledging that they need to grow. And I don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want me to stop growing. You, I don't want me to stop growing. And here's the thing. I am just talented enough and experienced enough and gifted enough to trick you. I can lean in and talk in a very quiet voice. And you go, wow, he's so caring and humble. Right, I can pray and quote a scripture and you go, oh my gosh, he prays and the Bible just comes out. 
Like, I know the game. I know how it works. And listen, every pastor does. And if you've ever been in a church where you've been like, how did this guy blow it like this? How did he fail? I mean, like, there was this one thing and this other thing. Every pastor knows how to fake it. And it's the easiest job in the world to fake. And I don't want to fake it. But you put me on a stage and you put a mic on my head and you put lights on me and, there's a, and, and then if all of you go, he's, he's, man. That is every temptation that I'm trying to fight. So don't put me on a pedestal. By the way, you don't need to think it's your personal job to keep me in my place either. I, <laughs> I have a wife for that. All right, I have our elders for that. Amen is right. 